Thanks for joining us. You're listening to the Life Church Podcast. In these episodes, you will hear encouraging messages from our weekend services. If you'd like to know more about us, watch a live stream, or find the closest Eastern Iowa campus near you, go to lifechurchnow.org. So we're in the series, uh, Catch the Wind, and basically talking about how we as a church are going to lift the sails, how we as a church are going to are going to allow God to use us and take us places that we've never been before, right? A couple weeks ago, I was reading a blog. <clears throat> this particular person was, was reading something out of uh, a pastor author, Erwin Lutz, Lutzer's book, and uh, he was commenting about a letter that Erwin Lutzer had received by a, a Christian who was living during uh, Hitler's Germany. And so in this letter, he writes... I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. We heard stories of what was happening to the Jews, but we tried to distance ourselves from all of that. After all, what could anyone really do about it? A railroad track ran behind our small church, and on Sunday mornings, we could hear the whistle in the distance as the wheels, coming, as the wheels coming over the tra- were coming over the tracks. We became disturbed when we heard the cries coming from the train as it passed by. We knew it was carrying Jews like cattle in those cars. Week after week, the whistle would blow. We dreaded to hear the sound of it because we knew that it would soon be followed by the cries of Jews en route to a death camp. Their screams tormented us. You can imagine this. We also knew what time during the service a train was coming. So when we would hear the whistle blow, letting us know that it was drawing closer, we would begin to sing hymns. And as it got closer, as the time passed and got closer, as the train started passing the church, we were singing even louder, trying to drown out the sound, basically. We would sing to the top of our voices, even if we still heard the screams, so that we wouldn't hear them anymore. That was a long time ago, this man writes. And many years have passed and no one talks about it anymore. But I still hear that train whistle in my sleep. God, forgive me. Forgive all of us who called ourselves Christians and yet did nothing. I read that a couple weeks ago and it prompted a memory of my own of when we were in Bangladesh in the late 90s, when we were in Bangladesh, um, I was invited to go speak in a town, uh, they call it a town, it's actually a, a town in Bangladesh is six million people, so Kulna is a city of about six million people, so it's our town, it's a small city. But um, they, I was invited to go speak at the church there in that, in that town, and uh, so I, I, I drove there and I stayed at a guest house overnight, and then the next morning, early in the morning, I, got a, I took a rickshaw and I rode the rickshaw to the church. I was riding the rickshaw to the church. It's about 7 o'clock in the morning, 7.30 in the morning, and on my way to the church, and get to this roundabout. You familiar, we have roundabouts here in Corville now. Americans have no idea how to deal with roundabouts, you know. <laughs> uh, but Bengalis are experts at it. I mean, and it's because of the British world, you know, it's whatever. But anyways, uh, so we come to this roundabout, and when I get there, it's like hundreds of rickshaws are just, suddenly it's like this traffic jam, but not of cars, of rickshaws. 
and they're just all, you know, we're just kind of inching along, inching along, and, and everybody's getting frustrated with each other. And as you get, when you get to the roundabout, there's like a, a center kind of guard post, and there's a, there's a policeman with a big stick, and he's waving. He's like, I don't know what he's doing, because he's doing this, and it's just a traffic jab. It's all it is. It's just a bunch of rickshaws just jammed together, trying to, you know, push their way through, you know, and... So we're, we're coming around this, this, uh, this uh, roundabout, turning right to where the church was going to be. And as I'm turning, as we're turning, I was right, I was a passenger, there was a rickshaw driver. As we're turning, a man from my left just ran out of the field and he ran into our rickshaw. And it startled me and I looked at him and it was just, his face was covered in blood. He was just bleeding from his, he had like some wounds in his head and he was bleeding from his scalp. <clears throat> And uh, it caught me off guard, of course, you know, and I saw that and looked at him, you know, kind of scared for a second. And then, um, like in a second, he ran off. He was asking for help. And he ran off. And then I saw why he was running. There was a mob of other guys with machetes and, and this kind of cutting tool called a boti. It's a curved knife that they use in Bangladesh. And... Uh, there was a mob of guys running after him and they chased him down and about 50 feet away from us, 75 feet away from me, they finally caught up to him and he fell to the ground. I, didn't, I couldn't see him, the guy that ran into our rickshaw, but he fell to the ground and all I could see as I was sitting in the rickshaw were arms going up like this with machetes, just swinging down at him. Something inside of me, I was sitting on that rickshaw and something inside me just rose up like, this is not right! And so I jumped up and I jumped off the rickshaw and then my rickshaw driver grabbed one arm and then the other rickshaw driver grabbed the other arm and then the passenger in that other rickshaw jumped on my back <laughs> and they held me back and I'm like, no brother, no brother, bad people, bad people, you know. And uh, like in a second it was done and this mob just kind of scattered, you know, scattered off. And uh, his body was there. And I... I was struck by it because here it was four or five guys chopping on this guy. There was hundreds of people watching this, hundreds of people watching us, and nobody did anything. Um, the word I want to talk about today is the word complacent. Uh, this word doesn't sound dangerous. It doesn't sound threatening in any way. We wouldn't call a complacent person a, an evil person necessarily, right? But what if I told you that the greatest threat to the world today is a church full of complacent people? That may be hard to believe, but I believe that. As a church, we're called to do more than what, we're, than what we often do. <clears throat> There's no question these past several years have been distressing for us as a culture with all the political volatility that we've been experiencing. I can't tell you, I've been, I've been watching politics since Reagan and not very closely. I'm usually on the outside watching. I don't watch closely to politics, but I've been watching politics since the 80s in Reagan and it's only been like in recent years where I'm watching something and I just talk about it. There's something inside of me rising up like I can't believe this is being done or this is being said. And I know that there's, as a culture, I think that's where we are at, we're all at. The economic recession is creating even more stress. Social and racial tensions have been front and center for most of us. 
And something inside of us has been stirred. Something inside of us says something has to be done, right? But what do we do? Like we don't wanna be complacent. We don't wanna be that church that hears the whistle of the train going by and when we, all we do is just start singing louder. Like let's just, let's try to drown it out. Let's pretend it's not happening. We don't wanna be that way. But then on the other end, there's some who believe that the opposite of complacency is aggression. Like if you're not raging against those who, disagree, who you disagree with, then, then somehow or another you're being complacent as well. Some people feel that way. Jesus is a great example of what it looks like to live in the tension between complacency and commitment. Jesus was surrounded by people, even his own disciples, who were trying to have him force him to take a political position. They wanted him to take sides. They wanted him to, to side with them against somebody else. But he just, he just refused to do that. He refused to take a political... It doesn't mean that he didn't talk politically. He did. He talked about a kingdom that he was bringing in. And when he talked about a kingdom that he was bringing in, uh, I think his disciples interpreted that like, yes, that's the kingdom we want to... Like they were thinking power. They were thinking authority, but Jesus rejected. He rejected that kind of kingdom. A kingdom that is advanced with power and position and politics. He rejected that. There's this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus, you know the story, he's, he's about to be arrested and tried and crucified. Judas has betrayed him. And before we cast a lot of you know, negative things about Judas, you, you have to understand, Judas, I think Judas did this because I, I think what Judas was expecting was when people, when the soldiers showed up, that Jesus would finally show his power. Like Judas believed that he had the power to establish this kingdom he's talking about. And maybe that's what Judas was hoping for, but this is not the kingdom that Jesus was bringing. And so these soldiers show up. Peter pulls out a sword, lops off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest. And Jesus immediately stops and says, stop that. That's not how we're doing this. And he does something really cool. He picks up the ear, puts it back on, and heals the guy. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. <laughs> and then he says this, verse 53 of Matthew 26. Don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands, and actually that word is 72,000 legions, 72,000 angels to protect us, and he would send them instantly? Like, Peter, do you think this is a question of power? Do you think that's what it is? That somehow or another, we're gonna muster up power to be able to go against them? I could call angels right now and take them out but that's not the kingdom that I came to bring. The kingdom I came to bring is a different kind of kingdom, operates by different values, where we consider others better than ourselves. Where when somebody slaps us on one cheek, we turn the other cheek. Where we pray for our enemies. Now you might say, well, that sounds kind of cowardly, Rich. Try it. Try to pray for your enemies. When that colleague at work slaps you on, on one cheek, try to turn the other cheek. 
takes a lot of courage to live by these new rules of this new kingdom. And that's the kingdom Jesus came to bring. And at Life Church, that's the kingdom that you and I, that we as a church are committed to. It, that's the kingdom that you and I, as followers of Jesus, have been called to advance. It's his kingdom. Not the kingdoms of this world, his kingdom. Amen? Tomorrow is uh, Martin Luther King Day, and Martin Luther King used to talk about this, this very tension a lot, about you know, loving your enemies. He used to speak about this very powerful ways. He used to say it this way, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. And let me tell you something. That's what we've been experiencing a lot in the last several years is people trying to bring light by using darkness. <clears throat> Philip Yancey in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew. If, you don't, if you've never read that, you should read it. Um, he says this. He's addressing the same issue. He says, regardless of the merits of, of, a, of a given political issue, like no matter how valid you think your, your position is on whatever it is, he says, whether it's a pro-life lobby on the right or a peace and justice lobby on the left, political movements risk pulling, listen to this, risk pulling onto themselves the mantle of power that smothers love. Let me interpret that. That when we choose to use, as followers of Jesus, choose to use a worldly system to try to introduce God's kingdom and we take on the mantle of power, we smother out love. He goes on. From Jesus I learn that whatever activism I get involved in, it must not drive out love and humility. Otherwise, I betray the kingdom of heaven. So we wanna do something. We don't wanna be complacent, right? We don't want to be complacent, but don't confuse humility and love with complacency. When I choose to prefer someone rather than tear them down for their political position, don't confuse that with complacency. By the same token, don't confuse hostility and rage with commitment. So we study through these different narratives, and that's what we're doing in this series. We're looking through some different, different narratives in the book of Acts. Um, we're going to see a church that's actually living out this kind of kingdom. It's going to be a testimony to us as we go through this. We're going to see a church that's living out this kind of kingdom. And I hope that we are not, that we're listening more than just the, you know, the one, two, three points that I need to take home and try to figure out how to apply to my life. I hope that what we're listening to and what we're hearing is the spirit of the kingdom of God that he's introducing. And when we do that, and when we start living according to that kingdom, this church, life church, can change the world. We can. And that's my prayer for life church in 2023. Today we're going to look at a story that kind of demonstrates that tension, the difference between complacency and commitment. It's a, it's a story of a couple that started out very committed, but then became complacent, and complacency has a way of leading to compromise. And let's look at a little backstory here in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. There was a lot of unity going on. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. That's how much unity there was. Like, I have a car. It's my car. But you can borrow it anytime you want. That's hard, isn't it? I did this. I had to do this. I got this new truck, you know, like a year and a half ago. And I got up here and preached 
after I'd gotten the truck, I'd been preaching, I talked about this very thing, about how, you know, we need to have a loose grip on the things that we possess. And that same day, I got home, that same day, my neighbor shows up and says, hey, nice truck, can I borrow it? <laughs> and my kids all looked at me like, okay, dad, are you gonna live by your preaching? <laughs> he borrowed it, and he's borrowed it almost monthly since then. <laughs> That's okay. <clears throat> no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I love this. Like, that was their message. Their message wasn't, you know, I can't believe these Sadducees and these Pharisees. I don't, that wasn't their message. Their message was, Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. And then the Bible says, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, in them all, and there were no needy persons among them. So in this early church, we see incredible unity, and we see a commitment to take care of people around them. Commitment to taking care of people outside of these four walls, yes, but also commitment to take care of people around them. Like, I don't know if you sometimes factor this in when you walk into this church building, you sit down in a chair, that there might be somebody sitting in the row that you're sitting in that's really struggling. And the church of Jesus Christ, the church has embraced the kingdom that Jesus has brought, is concerned with that person. They care for that person. They want to do something about that, right? goes on. <clears throat> From time to time, those who own land or houses sold them. I mean, that's how committed they were. They actually sold their land and their houses, bought, brought the money from the sales and put them at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. There's a couple of things I want to just point out real quick on this particular verse right here that we just read, that, first of all, this early church demonstrated their commitment through sacrificial generosity. Like, they sold their houses and gave it to the poor. That's pretty, pretty impressive, right? Like, commitment was demonstrated by what they were sacrificing for. Really, the de definition of sacrifice is, you know, that you giving up something, something you love for something or someone else that you love even more. Like, if, if I want to understand your commitment, your level of commitment, I will see, I will look at what you sacrifice for. That where you put your sacrifice, where you sacrifice for, there demonstrates what you really love and what you're really committed to. Now, before you throw rocks at me about that, I didn't make that up. That was Jesus' words. It was Jesus that made this connection. He, in Jesus' mind, money tells a story of our commitment. He says in Matthew 6, 21, for, whoever your, for wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what you sacrifice for reveals the level of your commitment. <clears throat> and this early church, they modeled rich generosity. They modeled sacrificial generosity. The second thing I want you to notice is that they, they help people in need by giving through the church. Now, we talk about giving to the church, or you, know, you might be able to say, hey, I've got this. I want to help somebody. I'm just going to do that on my own. I'm going to give this money to that person. I'm going to give this food to that person. Maybe I'll get a little credit out of that. Maybe they'll see my face. They'll know I did that. But there was something very powerful about this communal sense of generosity that they had. They brought it to the church, and they did it through the church. 
And this is why I think this is really important because when the church, before the church was like, you know, recognized, when, the, when there was an empire that was trying to basically stamp out the church of Jesus Christ, this is how they operated. Like, I don't know if you know this, but we, we, we're familiar with orphanages. Do you know that that actually has its roots, its birth in generosity on the part of the local church? Back when they were trying to be eradicated during the Roman Empire and a girl was born to a family and the father said, I'm looking for a boy, I don't want a girl, so he would take that baby and basically leave him in the woods. It was a church. It was people as a community that decided that they were gonna take that baby in and raise them as their own. And instantly, because of that generosity that they had, that generous spirit that they had, that child not only, not only received incredible, incredible benefit, but they had an instant community. And this is the benefit of giving through the church because there's, you're connected to people, you're connected to Jesus, and you're connected to a family. There's something powerful about when believers come together and generously give. This past year through Kingdom Builders, we as a church have given to a lot of different worthy projects out there. One of them is an organization, we, it's called Chi Alpha. Uh, Alyssa leads that here. We have several in different campuses. I have right now on my, on my desk in my office, three letters from three students from UNI, University of Northern Iowa. Uh, Luke, I see their names are Luke, Bethany, and Alyssa. And all of, the, all of them say in this letter, thank you for your generosity to us. We had a particular donation that we gave to the ca campus up there for some outreach. They wrote me a letter saying, thank you for the generosity of Life Church." Because of that generosity, I now, these are their words, I now have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that not only do I now have, now I'm sharing Jesus with other people. We, as a church, did that. Whether you gave $5 a kingdom builders or you gave $200,000 a kingdom, we, as a church, did that. There's power of a, in a unified church being generous and committed to touching the world around them. Let's get back to this story. So in chapter five, so that's four. So this is a couple, right, we're talking about. In chapter five, we're introduced to this couple, um, the first signs of complacency in the church. We see it in verse one. It says, but there was a certain man named Ananias who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. He brought, he brought part of the money to the apostles, but he claimed it. He claimed it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. I don't know if you see the problem here. You might, by surface reading, think the problem here is money. Like he, he had such a certain amount of money, was supposed to give it all, but didn't give it all, and now they're mad because he didn't give all the money. That's not really the problem here. It really is a problem of commitment. He wanted to pretend that he was more committed than what he really was. See, there would have been no problem at all if Ananias had showed up and said, hey, I sold this property for a million dollars, but I'm only gonna give you $500,000. They would have said, thank you very much. But he wanted to have the image of having sold it for a million. I mean, having, you know, having, you know, being generous with the whole amount, and so he gives only half of it, 500,000, and he wants that image, like, this is what I've done. And so the issue here is commitment, right? 
And so he does something different when he says, verse four, he says, how could you do this thing? You're not lying to us, but you're lying to God. So basically, Peter's just reinforcing this thought that, listen, this is, this is a spiritual issue of commitment, and you're not, it's not us you're hurting, it's, it's God, right? Verse five, when, Ani- when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. <laughs> like, like, if you've never read this story before, you're like, whoa, <laughs> this, is, this is severe, right? This is incredibly dramatic. Like he did bring some of it, doesn't that count? But the issue here, remember, is not amount. It's not about money. It's about commitment. It's about complacency on the part of, of Ananias and Sapphira. It's a commitment that he had made to this community and to God. Verse seven, about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. So you understand that. Ananias has died and he's moved on. Peter asked her, was this the price, was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied. Hmm. That was a price. And Peter said, how could you, how could the two of you even think about conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who carried your husband are, out, are just outside the door and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell on the floor and died. I bet the giving really got better. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> this story reveals how serious God takes our commitments this is why Jesus talks so much about money in the gospels because he knew that money tells a story of our commitments he was constantly constantly talking about money money testifies to the things I love most that's why he says wherever your heart is there your treasure will be also That's why I love this church, because you are incredibly generous. Like somehow or another, many of you have really caught on to the spirit of the kingdom of God, this generous, sacrificial generosity. I'm blown away by it. I don't know if you know this, but we had, a a little over a year ago, we made a commitment, our commitment for kingdom builders, we we made the decision, it's going to be $450,000, and I was trembling in my my boots, although I wasn't even wearing boots. I was trembling in my shoes. I was scared to death of how in the world are we going to raise $450,000? But, but it's you. You are this church that, is, that understands, understands the heart of God. And so instead of $450,000, you decided to give almost $700,000 this past year to Kingdom Builders. Amen. You can clap for that. You can clap for yourself. <clears throat> Thank you for showing what commitment looks like. Thank you for modeling what rich generosity looks like. I don't know if you understand this, but this is a witness. This is a testimony to not just our community, but this is a testimony to churches around that say, okay, this is possible, and you've made it possible. So in verse 4, he says, Peter asked this question, how could you do this thing? Like, how could you possibly do this thing? Now, Ananias doesn't have an opportunity to answer the question because it says he just fell dead. <laughs> like, again, it's just very dramatic. But I think, I think I understand how Ananias did this thing. Because I think that I have been complacent too. Thankfully, thankfully they're not doing it this way anymore. <laughs> 
I wouldn't be here. <laughs> but I understand it. I understand what it's like to, to make a commitment and then have to evaluate the measure of your commitment and think, oh man, can I possibly do this? And, and then when the thought comes in your head that, you know what, you don't have to do that and you wanna talk it down, you say to yourself, no, no, but I committed, I have to do this, right? But then as time passes and you start realizing, well, this is a lot of money and my bathroom needs remodeling and I need a new car over here and all these other things start happening in my head and I start justifying it and I start finding reasons why I shouldn't. And so Ananias and Sapphira, though, they didn't want to lose face with their community, so they decide they're just going to tell that they gave, gave all of it when they only give a part, part of it. I mean, this can be called a lot of things, but at the heart of it, it's complacency. It's complacency with the truth. It's complacency with this community that has trusted them. It's complacency with their commitment. It's complacency with the God that they serve. So I want to talk a little bit about this complacency real quick. I know my time is already up. I just... Long sermon, sorry, but uh, just a few descriptions of what complacency looks like, okay? Number one, number one, complacency is an indifference that settles in over a period of time. It's like, like you don't start, right? When you come to the Lord and you, you feel like this, this conviction to do something, you don't start saying, yeah, let me just be indifferent to that. That's not how it starts. Indifference doesn't start right away. What happens is I commit, but then over time I start seeing the need and it seems enormous and I'm not sure about it and there's a lot of dialogue goes on in my head and over time the, the need out there, the thing that needs to be done becomes sort of part of the furniture. I just see it all the time and I don't, I don't recognize it anymore and I'm just kind of indifferent to it. It's, just, it's, the, it's the idea that the, the whistle of the train goes by and you hear, at first you hear it and you hear it, you hear it, but then time passes and you hear it less and before long you don't even hear it at all. Complacency. Complacency is this inner voice that convinces you that someone else, someone else will do something. We've talked about this before. It's in psychology, it's called the bystander effect. It's this idea that you're in a group of people in a crowd of people and you see a need. There's an urgent need that needs to be met. You see it, you know it, but then you look around and you say, well, there's a lot of people here. And I know that you know, something needs to be given to kingdom builders, but somebody else with more money will do it. I know that somebody else needs to serve in this church and actually work with kids or hospitality or small groups or whatever, but there's a lot of people here. Somebody else will serve. Somebody else will care more about human trafficking. Someone else will do it, and that's just complacency. Complacency, number three, is often disguised as procrastination. It's not that I'm not going to do it. It's just I'm not going to do it right now. I can be guilty of that. <clears throat> complacency is inaction when an impending threat calls for action. Like it's urgent. Something is happening, and you need to do something right now. It's how I felt sitting on that rickshaw that day in Bangladesh. I wanted to rise up and do something. Listen, there's an urgency to the gospel today. The return of Jesus is closer than you think. We don't have the luxury of just sitting around saying, you know, one day we'll do it. Or, or somehow another, look at the problem and compare that problem with all of our own issues and think, well, that's... That problem just needs to take second seat or put it in the background. 
Jesus is coming back. And so for Life Church, I want this to be a year in which we get serious about seeing a need and acting and not just talking about it. Amen. There's this, uh, there this occupation in um, early 20th century England. Um, what they would do, the, the job, what the job was, was they would go from house to house knocking on doors. They would wake up really early in the morning, go from house to house knock, knocking on doors to wake people up so they could be ready for work. And, uh, and that, was, that was what the, the, the profession entailed, is that's what they were, their job was. It had, it had an unfortunate title. I didn't make this up. This is what they were called. They were called the knocker-uppers. <laughs> 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 um, you don't want that on your resume, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but their job basically was, you know, in, in a time period when there were alarm clocks, but they were kind of unreliable, the community relied upon them to basically go from door to door and knock and say, hey, wake up, wake up, it's five o'clock in the morning, it's time to get to the factory, it's time to get to work, wake up, wake up, wake up. And they relied on that, they needed that. And as I was reading through this, I realized this is what we need to be about this year. And I hope this doesn't sound like a broken record to you, but I hope that you're going to he be hearing us on a regular basis. Hey, it's time to wake up. It's time to get out of that complacency. It's time to stop. It's time to stop acting like we have all of life ahead of us. It's time to start doing something now. Now is the time to get serious with God. And so we're going to be acting like some knocker-uppers. Knocking on some doors. Lastly, five, complacency is making a choice to play it safe and take it easy. It's this idea, I've done enough, I've worked hard enough, I'm just gonna relax. This is described by the person that Jesus talks about in Luke 12, Luke 12, 19. This man says he's, he's gonna, he, he, he's, he's wealthy, he has a lot, he has so much, he doesn't even know where to put it, so he's going to tear down his barns, and he's going to build bigger ones, right? This is what he says. And then, after he's built his bigger barns, and then I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have, you have enough stored away for years to come, now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Now, I don't know if you catch the problem here, but the problem here is that this man's goal was complacency. And Jesus, talking about him in verse 20, says, you're a fool. You're a fool to try to live that way. You're a fool to think that you have the rest of your life. If you keep reading through the book of Acts, you'll find, I mean, I, there's so much I want to talk about. Let's all stand right now. I might apologize for going so long. Yesterday, um, <clears throat> yesterday was a funeral here. Uh, in, here at Life Church in this building, uh, the the mother-in-law of Jacob Shaver, who's one of our staff members here, she had passed away at an early age, 61. And um, and this room was not quite this full, but it was it was there was a lot of people in this room, and uh, 200 maybe 250 something like that. Um, and it was a long service, almost a little over two hours long. There was some worship, and there was all this. And I didn't really know Shelly Armstrong very well, but one thing I had discovered through the service is this is a woman that even though she died at a young age, she really impacted a lot of people's lives. But, and I said to myself, this is what a, fu a Christian funeral should look like. 
when, when we talk about celebration of life, that's what it should look like. A person who said, many years ago in their, in their early years of life said, Jesus, I refuse to be complacent. I am committed to you. It doesn't mean that she didn't have some challenges along the way, but she lived by a commitment that she made. And then the day that we're burying her, people are setting up and saying, she changed my life. God changed my life through her. So I guess the challenge I'm putting out to us, I don't know how to wake people up from complacency necessarily, and, and I'm not trying to beat you over the head either on that, but the challenge is, will you ask yourself, honestly ask yourself, am I complacent with my commitment to the Lord? Am I just taking it easy, thinking that I have plenty of time? And if so, make that decision today. Jesus, I commit. I go all in for you. Amen. Let me pray for us, and, uh, and then we'll dismiss here. We have prayer teams here in the left and right. If you'd like prayer, I encourage you to step out. They, they're here to serve you. And, uh, and if, if you're here today and you are making a commitment, whatever that commitment is, you're making a commitment, I encourage you. I don't encourage you. I challenge you to step out and go talk to one of them and tell them I'm committing my life to Jesus today. I'm committing to stop this, you know, viewing pornography. I'm committing to do it. Whatever the commitment is, making that commitment, step out and talk to them. I challenge you then. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you, God, for, for the fact that you weren't complacent. You saw a world that needed redemption and the cost for that was your very life. But you went through with it. Now you invite us as followers of you to, to lay it all down and to give it all for you, Lord. To surrender our lives in exchange for the life that you want to give us to surrender the things that we desire most for the things that you want us to have. God, we are here ready to commit. So Father, will you speak to us? Will you challenge us? Will you, Holy Spirit, do the work right now? Lord, I know I can't convince anybody of this, but I know, Holy Spirit, you can. So I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, to do the work. In Jesus' name.